From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Tom Price here, uh, Jack Williams away today, and, and we are joined today by America's favorite Dominican. That would be Father Brian Milady. How are you, Padre? Just peachy coming to you today from St. Joseph's Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Wow, fantastic. Are you doing a uh, retreat? What's up? Mission for Mission. Yes. Very good. All right. In a moment here, we're going to get to uh, Father's topic, and then we'll get to the phones. But uh, let me give you those phone numbers at the top here. It's 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for our response, and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. And if you like, you can certainly email us. The address, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure to put either Father Brian in the subject line or Thursday in the subject line so that we'll make sure we get the right email to the right show. So today, Father, uh, you're going to be talking about the Immaculate Conception, right? Absolutely. All right. Okay. It, it's true we celebrated the feast yesterday, mm -hmm. but she is the patroness of the United States. And I think the beauty of this feast needs to be emphasized very, very much. In uh, the Mass text, if you attended Mass, because it was a holy day in most places yesterday, it talks about prevenient grace. Now, what the heck is prevenient mm -hmm. grace? Well, it's uh, explained, actually, in the second reading of Ephesians, where it talks about the fact that God, before the foundation of the world, has a plan for each one of us that we might become holy and blameless in his sight. Well, the manner in which this was applied to the Blessed Virgin is that his prevenient grace for her was that she was to be the mother of the Messiah. And because of this wonderful event, which we're preparing for, of course, soon at Christmas, as uh, leave him coming out of her womb. Actually, she conceived him nine months before, obviously. And so in the Annunciation, we actually celebrate the Incarnation. And interestingly enough, all the feasts are uh, tailored for March 25th. Uh, the birth of St. John the Baptist is uh -huh. about three months later. As a member of the angel told her in the Annunciation that Elizabeth was in her third month. And now, of course, December 25th now is nine months later. First of all, I want to be very clear. People are sometimes confused about what we celebrate in this feast. We do not celebrate the conception in Mary of Jesus. That was celebrated in the Annunciation. Mm. What we celebrate is her conception in the womb of St. Anne through the seed 
of Joseph, Joachim. And um, because she was to be the mother of the Redeemer, God, by a special grace given to no other human being, preserved her from all sin. Now, that includes the effects and the fact of original sin. Mary was born, conceived, without original sin. It took a number of years for this feast to be proclaimed. It was the dogma was only proclaimed as a dogma, which had to be believed in 1854 by Pius IX. And one of the reasons was because it was hard to explain how Mary could be among the redeemed, because she has to be redeemed. Jesus is her redeemer, too, without having anything to be redeemed from. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and the explanation that was accepted was that of the Franciscan theologian, Don Scotus, who said that in light of her participation in all of the redemptive acts of Christ, God miraculously did not allow, even though she was conceived by human seed connected to Adam, did not allow the effects of the sin of Adam in any sense to touch her. And so she was pure in every sense of the word. Now, Protestants often have a difficulty understanding why we make so much of Mary. I remember I had an evangelical friend of mine who's very intelligent, very good man, and he said to me, what's this Mary bit with you people anyway? <laughs> so I said to him, well, you do believe in Holy Scripture, right? Oh, yeah. Literal interpretation? Oh, yeah. Well, it says in Scripture, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Well, that's all we're doing is fulfilling that line in Holy Scripture. Mm -hmm. And he sat there and he thought for a minute. And he said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> wow, a concession. Yes. Well, and not only that, but, you know, Mary is the first member of our church, obviously, mm -hmm. because uh, she bore Christ in her body. And she's also the greatest member of our church because the angel proclaims her to be full of grace and says the Lord is with you. In the initial experience she has, which she's been prepared for her whole life, I don't know if you remember the story of her own conception. It's very beautiful and it's found in the gospel, which is not actually considered inspired, except for this part of it, the Proto-Evangelium of St. James. And both Anne and Joachim were barren, and they prayed that they would have a child, and they promised that if they had a child, they would dedicate her to the Lord. So Joseph was praying outside of the city, and Anne was praying in the city, and it was revealed to both of them by an angel they would conceive, and they ran to meet each other, and they met and embraced at the city gates. In fact, this is the only representation of, in Christian art of a married couple embracing each other. Mm. Mary and Joseph were never perceived that way because, of course, the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not uh -huh. by Joseph. Right. And so um, when she was born, they were afraid she might miss her family because they were going to dedicate her as a temple, a virgin in the temple of the Lord. And so they kept her at home for two or three years. Well, the story says that when they took her to the temple. The high priest was standing at the top of the steps. And instead of looking back as a three-year-old, she just jumped up the steps. And it says she was happy and danced and prayed in the temple. And all of Israel 
loved her. Wow. Now, we say, uh, tota pulchra es Maria, you are all beautiful, Mary, because original sin never touched you. And God bridled whatever problem she might have with sin. Remember, Adam and Eve didn't have original sin original, initially, but by their disobedience, they lost grace. In this case, God also bridled in her any movements that might possibly be against him. And then she was conceived, she was preserved in grace and actually confirmed in it. She's really the only person in the history of the world that was confirmed in grace on earth. Mm -hmm. Of course, Jesus is a divine person when she bore Christ in her body. And uh, so the gospel passage we use for this is, of course, the Annunciation. And you may remember that in the Annunciation, the angel appears to her and it's like a wedding ceremony because God is going to marry Mary Mm -hmm. uh, and the Trinity. And when he says to her, full of grace, he literally means that she is Greater, her initial grace is greater than even the grace of the angels and saints in heaven because she is to give birth to the Messiah. Well, she's troubled by this, not because she doubts it, but because like every bride, she wants to know what she's getting into. (laughs) And so she says, how can this be as I do not know man? Now, the angel occupies the place that the priest or deacon would in a marriage. And you remember in Catholic marriage ideas, the couple or the are the ministers, right, not right. the priest or deacon. Mm-hmm. So she asks for more information. In a marriage ceremony, normally the priest or deacon says, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do that? Accept children, etc." Uh-huh. And people answer yes. So she wants more information. Notice what the angel says to her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's one person of the Trinity. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, no Jew could have heard these words without thinking of the holy cloud that uh, overshadowed Mount Sinai when the mm-hmm. law was given mm-hmm. and filled the temple. The, the Jews still call it the Shekinah today. And so that's the Father. And therefore, the holy offspring to be born in you will be called the Son of God. All right. That really unpacks an awful lot about the Immaculate Conception, which I think a lot of people uh, don't really understand, so we thank you so much for that, Father Brian. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you could join us for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. We have a line open for you right now at 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in a moment here. Uh, Father, there's a few more uh, things that you wanted to mention regarding the Immaculate Conception, right? Yes. So uh, when Mary receives this explanation, Uh it's like her catechesis, 
And all the world hangs on her reply, the whole history of the world. And so when she says, let it be done, you'll notice she does say she's doing it. It's a grace. Let it be done. Earth weds heaven. Mm. And um, we have the mystic marriage of Mary with the Holy Trinity. So she conceives Christ first by her faith. She believes, but so powerful is her faith. Blessed are you, Mary, for your firm believing that she actually then conceives Jesus in her body by her faith. Okay, very good. And while we're on the subject here, let me uh, give you a, a real quick email that we received all about this very subject. This is from George, who says, If God made Mary free from original sin, why is it significant that Mary experienced an immaculate conception? Why didn't he just do the same for Jesus? Well, he doesn't have to do that for Jesus. Jesus is God. Yeah. He's the person, the second person of the Trinity. Mary's only a human person, remember. Right. And so the very fact that he unites a human nature to the person of the word in Mary's body and time uh, makes Christ a holy creature. In fact, you know, sometimes you'll hear priests today, not too well educated, We'll talk about Jesus wasn't a priest because he didn't go through an ordination ritual. <laughs> yeah. Well, he didn't have to because he was anointed. That's what Messiah means sure. from the moment of his conception in Mary's womb. Mm-hmm. So, of course, and also remember, he wasn't conceived by human seed. So his material connection with Adam was only through Mary's flesh. But the actual person is divine. So that's why Jesus' grace is called the hypostatic union and no other human being. This is a miracle by God because we are joined to Christ in nature, but not in person. He's the unique son of God. Yeah. Well, very good. George, thanks so much uh, for your email. We will get to the phones and uh, begin with Madeline in just a moment here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. I want to tell you first, though, about a brand new book now available from EWTN Publishing, and it's called Adoption. Should you? Could you? And then what? Straight answers from a psychologist and adoptive father of 10. And that would be, of course, our very own Dr. Ray Garendi, drawing from professional and personal experience as well as uh, scientific research, Dr. Ray provides authentic answers to challenging real-life questions regarding adoption, including frustrations about the adoption process, including why couples have to wait so long. And uh, I know that uh, Ray and his wife, Randy, had to wait for a long time for some of their kids. Uh, also, they'll be, it'll be talking about healthy motives and reasons to adopt and how to make adopted children feel special. This is a wonderful book, Adoption, Should You, Could You, and Then What? It's available now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Madeline in Hill City, South Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hi, Madeline. What's on your mind today? Hello. I remember ever since... um we first got Father Milady to be our um, Thursday person. That uh, in his bio, you guys said that he had moved around a good bit in his youth when he was still with mom and dad because I think his dad was in the service or something. Yes. 
And that has made me curious ever since then. If going to so many different um, dioceses around the world in different countries and different cultures, if that um, stuck with you in a way that helped you decide that you had been called to be a priest, or anything else wise you can say about your calling to be a priest and okay. people. All right. Uh, all right. Well, first of all, we didn't go outside the country because my father was in aerospace. Okay. So we helped to develop the Atlas missile and Project Mercury. Mm. Um, however, of course, as a priest, I've traveled a good bit. I lived in Rome for six years, and I've also visited Pakistan. Oh, dear, don't go there. Um, <laughs> Manila, uh, Rio de Janeiro. Um, and, of course, in Europe, I was in many different places when I lived there. Mm. What I will say is this, service children are different because we know we're going to be transferred, so we make try to make friends easily and quickly. Now, for some people, that means that we're too forward and outgoing. I will say also that um, my vocation was a grace from God. I had had the sisters of St. Joseph whom I still greatly revere as my teachers in the 50s in grammar school. But after that, I hardly ever knew any priests except chaplains. Hmm. And I read a great deal of history. And in those days, uh, they used to be able to get books free and base chapels from image books and things. Mm -hmm. So I read a history of the Jesuit martyrs, a number of them, and that filled them with zeal. And my father, who was basically against my vocation, didn't like priests or sisters. He did think at one time I should be a Jesuit. Well, I went for this interview and it didn't work out. It was a disaster because I didn't go to any Catholic schools after I was mm. in sixth grade. That meant a lot in those days. But when I went to college, I went to Santa Barbara and I met the Franciscans at the time there. And I liked them, but I wanted a more intellectual order. And the Dominicans were quite uh, well known at the time, partially, strangely, through the, uh, remember the singing nun? Yes. Dominica, Nica, the sure. top of the charts. Well, you know, Dominica means Dominic. Uh huh. And that song was about St. Dominic. Mm. And so I wrote a letter. I found this vocation literature in a friend of mine's room. And I wrote a letter to them, and they were so different. Oh, we're storming heaven that you'll enter, uh, all these things. And I really wanted a more monastic life. Uh huh. So that's when I decided just all of my own to become a Dominican. I had never even met any Dominicans at the time. I'd only had one letter from the vocation director. My, my father was very angry when I told him, he even hung up the phone, but it wasn't his vocation. Yeah. And in those days, of course, people knew their minds young. And also it was during the Vietnam War. And if I had not decided to enter, I wasn't against going to the war, mm -hmm. but I would have had to make a commitment for six years in ROTC and things. And I could have, would have had to postpone my decision. So I just decided one day I was entering and that's the way it happened. So wow. my, my vocation story is atypical. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was a grace from God. And people ask me how I kept my faith at berserkly all through the late sixties <laughs> and early seventies. And I said, well, it wasn't me, believe me. Uh, Cause I was after my novitiate, I was so tired of being told I couldn't think by some people that I was the most liberal person 
of course, I was only 20. Yeah. And I began to get the impression that things were going bad soon. Yeah. And one thing I did not do ever, even though I got rather liberal, was the Centrum Humani Vitae. I was very puzzled by that whole argument. And I didn't make any decisions about it for a year or two. And by then I decided that contraception was evil and people wanted to change the church. So, um, and, and, and I also say, I actually told this of Marcus Grodi once. They had me on and I said, well, but I'm not a convert. <laughs> but they said, but you have an interesting story. And no doubt about so, that. Well, I, I read, I took this class from an Episcopalian at Berkeley in St. Augustine. And all we did was read the city of God from cover to cover. And in the late sixties, when I finished reading that book, I shut the book and I said, this is the truth. And all this junk I've been spouting is nothing but junk. Wow. So it was God's grace. Really. Uh, I can't take any responsibility for it at all. And uh, so that's the story, really. What a great story. Madeline, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. You made my day, Father, when you said berserkly. I haven't heard that in a long, <laughs> long time. That is fantastic. Uh, before we go back to the phones, a quick question uh, via email from yeah, Hannah. Yeah. Do you have any practical tips for speaking to Jesus as he truly is and not whatever we have made him to be in our minds? Well, you have to find out who he truly is, first of all. And once you do that, then you have to change your mind to fit that. And that's when you speak to him as he truly is. People today have tended to reduce Jesus. And this this is just here. Uh A number of years ago, Dorothy Sayers, this would be in 1930, she was an Anglican. And she was the first woman to graduate from Oxford University in medieval studies. And among other things, the Lord Peter Wimsey Mysteries, she wrote a series of plays based on the Gospels. Father Fezio reprinted them a few years ago in Ignatius Press. And all these young people in England, Anglicans, came and said, where did you get all these new ideas about Christ? We've never heard them before. And she said, well, you'll find them in the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Ephesus, and the Council of Nicaea. (laughs) The trouble is your priests, and she was talking about Anglican priests at the time, think that all you want to hear about is social justice, and they don't really teach you our dogma. So she wrote an article called The Dogma is the Drama. And one of the things she said in there was people today think Jesus is a good man, so good as somehow to be identified with God, who preached a simple doctrine of love and pacifism. Now, we need to return to Jesus of the Gospels. And I even have a CD lecture on that, the Jesus of the Gospels, mm. because the Jesus of the Gospels is very far from that picture. He's a, first of all, he's a redeemer, uh-huh. and that's been left out of the picture quite a bit. Even Cardinal Ratzinger said that in a talk he gave to European theologians in 1989, why faith is such trouble in Europe now. So what we need to do is reexamine what our doctrine is and what the councils portray. And of course, people like Thomas Aquinas are very helpful in that, but it ultimately comes down to the discussions they had in the early councils where they finally came up with the definition of Christ, the Chalcedon, about 451, I believe it was, where they said that, you know, in Christ, the person of the word, continuing to preserve 
God's nature, took to himself a human nature, but not a human person, mm-hmm. the natures being separate without mixture, etc. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for your email, Hannah. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, the address openline at EWTN.com. In a moment, we'll be talking with Gina in Springfield, Illinois. We have a line for you as well at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Glad you could join us for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show, and that would be a wonderful thing. Let's go to uh, Gina now in Springfield, Illinois, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Gina. What's on your mind today? Hi, I was concerned about Adam and Eve had the great temptation and they ate the apple. You know, I think about the trick that Eve went through, you know, to reduce herself to uh, disobey God. And when I die, do I have to worry about tricks of this sort in heaven? Or will there not be a devil waiting like, you know, they experienced? And obviously, they also lost the angels. And Lucifer was a good angel, and what what happened to him? Is that going to happen to other people? Okay. All right. Well, first of all, uh, the angels in their original creation were not in heaven. Adam and Eve, it's true, were in Eden, but they were not in heaven either. They were still pilgrims on this earth. When an angel makes their first decision, they're such powerful intellectual beings that they either decide for God or self. So the good angels decided for God and went to heaven. The wicked angels decided for self, and that's what they were left with, and that's what hell is. Regarding Adam and Eve, they uh, their pilgrimage included, even though they had these marvelous gifts, their obedience to God, because they were all a result of grace. Eve, you know, was attracted by the... Well, they say an apple, it wasn't, well, that's a figure. But whatever it was that would allow her to think that she was in this state on her own. Now, she wasn't convinced, she could be a little convinced of that intellectually, but when she had the disorder movement toward herself, that lost her grace. And so Adam followed suit at her suggestion. Now, remember, that wasn't the end of their pilgrimage, though. Immediately, and this was part of the uh, first reading for the book of Genesis, for the Immaculate Conception, the Redeemer is promised. The Eastern Church actually celebrates Adam as a saint, as I recall. So presumably they, they converted. In heaven, you can't be tempted. You see God in the face. Heaven's a whole other different experience. The only time this can occur is on earth. And regarding death, well... Death is a compromising time, but that's why you prepare for death your whole life in a way, because you love Christ. And death is nothing but falling into Christ's everlasting arms. Also, that's why we pray while people are dying and things, Mm -hmm. so that they won't be, in any sense, finally tempted. But usually how you lived your life has a great deal of influence over how you die, although, as you know, 
some people who live wicked lives actually convert just before they die. So you don't have to worry about that once you go to heaven. There are no demons in heaven. There are no devils in heaven. There's no temptation in heaven. God is all in all. Yes. And it's not. It's a permanent state, and we can't return to being a pilgrim. It's already done. So that's that's the point. All right, uh, Gina, be not afraid. Thank you so much uh, for your Absolutely. call. Absolutely. All right, it's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. A couple of lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Sam now driving through Iowa, listening on the great Iowa Catholic Radio. Hey, Sam, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. Um, I was listening to the discussion of the Immaculate Conception of Christ. And I'm a Protestant, no, no. and one thing that interests no, no. me. There is no Immaculate Conception of Christ. Yeah. Did you mean the Immaculate the Conception impact. of Mary? Only. I'm sorry, yes, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, okay. That was, that was uh, sure. Yeah, go, okay. forgive me. Go, go right uh, ahead. But one, of the thing, one of the things I'm interested in is the discussion between the peccability and the impeccability of Christ. All and right. I was wondering whether... Um, the, the Immaculate, taking a position on the Immaculate Conception of Christ plays a role in determining whether one accepts that Christ is impeccable. All right, well, let's say this again. Christ, the Immaculate Conception is about Mary. Christ's conception is what we call the virgin birth. And yes, it has everything to do with that, because in Mary's womb, the second person of the Trinity took flesh, but not another person. So Jesus is not an adopted son. He's a natural son. And the special grace of the incarnation is shared by no other person or human being that has ever existed or will exist. And because Christ is the mediator between God and man, then the graces of the redemption are all related to him. And on the cross, he redeems us, not, remember, he suffers all those things, but not for himself, because he doesn't need them. Everything Jesus took upon himself, the fancy theology books say he took, took economically, well, that doesn't have anything to do with your household accounts. What they mean is he took to reveal God to us in our situation. So sin if he did assume sin, that would have attracted, detracted from his perfect obedience on the cross. And the perfect obedience on the cross is a necessary part of the atonement. And all that comes from this special grace which Christ had when he was conceived in Mary's womb, which is the virgin birth, not the Immaculate Conception. Okay. Sam, was that helpful for you? That that was that was very helpful. Thank you. You are most welcome. Sure. Open Line Thursday sure. with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Uh, you're at a, a parish mission in Jacksonville, Florida. Is it warm there today, Father? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably about 60 degrees here today. Which so is... for Oregon, that would be warm. For 
Florida, it's not. Not so much. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you would like to ask a question of Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-3986. Here's a question uh, actually from Jacksonville, Florida. This came from Bob and an email. He says, a dear friend who is a non-Catholic has requested I spread his ashes after his death. I know it's improper when the deceased is Catholic. Is it allowed for a Catholic to participate when the deceased is a non-Catholic? What do you think, Father? Oh, gee, I don't know. Uh, I don't. The reason it's improper is you can be cremated, provided it's not for a religious purpose like the Hindus, you know, burn right. up the body because they right. think it liberates the soul. Uh, but it's scattering we consider to be exceedingly disrespectful to the body. Uh-huh. So you either have to bury it, or if you want to be buried at sea, that's fine, but it has to be in a jar sealed mm, okay. and be scattered over the waters. And if you want to say it, I don't know about if it's permitted, but what you're participating in is something that's very disrespectful. Remember, the body is something that's holy. It participated in our redemption. After all, all the sacraments touched our bodies. And that's why we incense the body and all those things at death. So scattering would not be uh, viewed as a proper way to treat a human being after death. I remember, now both of my parents are deceased. They both wanted to be cremated. I was not a Catholic at the time when my mother uh, passed away. She wanted her ashes scattered. Uh, since I didn't know any better, I complied with that. Sure. But but when I was a Catholic and my dad passed away, I did know better. And so we, we purchased a niche at a local uh, cemetery yes. and uh, placed the ashes there uh, in a very respectful way. And, and right. Because that's that's what you do. That's right. Exactly. Okay. Very good. It is open line uh, Thursday with Father Brian here on EWTN. Back to the phones in a moment. First, a question from April. How can we combat human constructed truths and relativism? <laughs> Welcome to the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the only way we can combat it is, first of all, for us to investigate the truth. Mm-hmm. More uh, universally, we have to admit there is objective truth. Which, as you know, today, many people don't admit that. I, I know in, in math classes now, they vote on the right answers. Aye, aye, aye. Two plus two apparently doesn't equal four. Uh, and I'm waiting for the first bridge to be built with people who voted on the right answers in mathematics. <laughs> Good luck uh, with that. It's just yeah. going to fall down. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing is you have to be clear about what you think the truth is and have good reasons for thinking that and uh, live that as though it were the case. Unfortunately, with the school systems the way they are, and the government, and even some people in the church who are influenced by these things, uh, it's very hard to combat this, except by saying, look what you produced. Uh, uh, Bishop Sheehan, interestingly enough, in the 70s, because remember, there was a lot of subjective truth then, and a lot of violence then too in society much like we're experiencing now, although now it seems to be more widespread with the crime in our cities. After I live in Portland, you know, yeah. the murder rate's gone up 700% in the last year. 
Um, he said that when we don't do violence to our own egos within, you know, our own sinful inclinations, the streets pick it up. Mm-hmm. And we, the drug culture and everything, the streets have picked it up big time. And people don't want to think anymore. Uh, they just want to emote. Yeah. And I've been a teacher most of my life. And I think what most people learn in school now is how to be offended. Oh, yeah. Interestingly enough, there was a book written in the 80s, a secular book called The Closing of the American Mind. Yes. By And in this book, the author Bloom says that in universities today, nobody's interested in objective truth anymore. All they're interested in is what the culture says is fun or what you feel. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So the way you combat objective tr- uh, subjective truth relativism is to not believe in it yourself and to try to find out what the truth actually is and then live it accordingly. Very good. Thank you so much uh, for your question, April. It's Open Line uh, uh, Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Forgot what day it is. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian here on EWTN Radio. You know, one of our great weekend shows is Vatican Insider with our, our longtime insider, Joan Lewis. That comes on uh, the air Saturday at 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. This week, Joan talks about 70 years of Caritas Internationalis, a wonderful organization. Do check out Vatican Insider, Saturday at 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now. Here is Bill in Virginia, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Father. I have a question, and I, I thought about this the other day when I was in confession, is that when I'm confessing my sins, I'm confessing them to Jesus. But you're a human, and you're hearing this confession, and when your day is over, you've heard a lot of stuff. What does that do to you and mentally, uh, psychologically? Does that still linger in you, or are you forget uh, like it does? I don't know. Well, I know people think that we remember everything people tell us, but, you know, when you're in confessions and there are a hundred people in line, um, in my lifetime, and I'm, I'm ordained 50 years this year, I probably remember in specific maybe five confessions. Really? Yeah, I do remember some that are national characteristics sometimes with confessions <laughs> where they have a tendency to talk about the same things. Uh-huh. But we don't really carry with us, except from the confessional, much. Uh, most people have the same types of problems. They may have a variation on the theme, but it's usually family problems and um, also sometimes business problems. They're telling those things to Jesus, not to me. I just happen to be the human being. Now, that's valuable. Uh-huh. The famous psychiatrist Carl Jung, uh, who lived about the early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th century, said that one of the reasons Protestants had a lot of psychological difficulties at the time was because they had nobody to talk to about their inner problems. And whereas Catholics had less neurosis. Now, of course, today, since the confessionals are empty in some places, we're just as neurotic as everybody else. <laughs> oh boy! In many cases, but um, you know, these are not. The, I don't solve the problems. Uh, it's not me. 
they tell them to Christ and they ask Christ for help. One of the reasons we recommend venial sin confession, you don't have to do it, obviously. You only have to confess or remember mortal sins is because you need to put before Jesus the places where you personally need his help, which may be a different place than someone else. And it's a good place to say those things out loud Mm -hmm. just because you get it out of your system. So, uh, no, I don't I don't think most people that are priests remember most of the confessions they hear. I'm sure that's a that's a, a relief for an awful lot of people. Hey, Bill, thank you so much uh, for your question. Let's go now to uh, Linda in St. Charles, Missouri. Linda, what's on your mind today? Well, hi. Thank you for taking my call, and congratulations, Father, for all your service to as a priest. We appreciate it very much. Um, my question is, the souls in purgatory, I understand they cannot pray for themselves. Can they right. pray for another soul that is in purgatory? Well, uh, everybody can pray for people. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is that their purgation is passive. And the common theological opinion about this is that we shouldn't interrupt their purification personally by either asking them to pray for us, although they could, I suppose, or, you know, get involved in someone else's, that's our job and the saint's job. And that's why we have to pray for the dead constantly. Uh, Catholics used to be famous for their prayers for the dead. And now, unfortunately, I don't know why, but it's become a little eclipsed in our church. Uh, The necessity of prayers for the dead are very interesting Catholic-wise. There's an old series called The Six Wives of Henry VIII it was on the BBC in the late 60s. And Henry VIII's third wife, Lady Jane Seymour, who died giving birth to the long-for heir, even though he started the reform of the Protestant church, and she was she was a Catholic in sentiment, but she kind of went along with what the king wanted. There's a scene where he object, she objects to some of the things they've been doing. And she says, you know, you've limited masses of the dead to one. And, of course, they eventually did away with them completely. Uh-huh. She says, how can you do that? It's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. Well, of course, he tells her she doesn't know anything about theology. She's just a stupid woman, right? <laughs> but interestingly enough, when she dies, and this is historically accurate, he turns to the person causing the Reformation, Cromwell, and he says, well, her last request, which I suppose we must honor, is that a thousand masses be said for the repose of her soul. Wow. So Catholics have a very strong uh, interest in that. So I suppose you, they probably could, but our, our emphasis has always been much more on allowing them to experience their purification and us being the active agent. Remember, they don't, they don't have bodies anymore. Mm-hmm. So if they could, ex- they could experience their purgation on earth, but now in heaven, it's in purgatory, it's only passive. And we need to make it, help them along by our active works and prayers. Linda, great question. Thanks so much for checking in, uh, yes. listening there to uh, the Great Covenant Network in the St. Louis, uh, St. Charles area. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Barbara wants to know, is dialogue with other religions with the hope of converting them sinful? Is dialogue with other religions with the hope uh, of converting them? Converting them Uh sinful. 
Well, no. In fact, Vatican II was very, very interested, as you know, in dialogue with other religions. Mm. People often say, and unfortunately with some theologians today, they tend to want to say that all religions are equal. Now, that's a Masonic position. We don't hold that. But on the other hand, I think my reading, because I lived through Vatican II, you know, I was in the pre-Vatican II church. Lots of people haven't at this stage of the game. Uh, I believe what they thought was that it was much more helpful to encouraging people to accept the church, to not just hurl condemnations at them, but to try to find out common points of agreement uh-huh. so that we could uh, encourage those. And, you know, today in our anti-Christian, post-Christian society, even though I don't agree with some of the people that I write to on Facebook, because they're evangelicals, and occasionally I'll have a diatribe against purgatory or something like that. <laughs> but some of them are very sincere, and they're also very critical of the anti-Christian nature of society. And that I do encourage greatly to, them to keep doing that. All right. Very good. Appreciate that. Uh, Barbara, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Audra. How do you avoid using the sacraments and indulgences in a way that emphasizes the work aspect rather than the belief aspect? The way you do that is you first of all have to be aware of what an indulgence is. Uh, An indulgence and and the sacraments in general are not just uh, external things that have a magical significance of some kind. They're all a part of the treasure of the church by which we apply the merits of Christ to, first of all, well, of course, our own experience in the sacraments, but secondly, to our punishment, temporal punishment for sin, and of course, even to the poor souls in purgatory. It's another example where we, by our active works, having masses said for them, for example, or if we suffer an illness, like a debilitating illness, like maybe we're dying of cancer, mm-hmm. We can offer our sufferings for them, too, or for other intentions. So it's not just a kind of divine ledger system where you have a book where you check off stuff. Instead, it's an attempt to take the works of love and use them to influence the uh, conversion of another, whether on this earth or after, or even to make up for what we've done, that uh, God forgives your sin and confession But, you know, you always have this stuff left over from it. I saw a great explanation of this, that suppose you had a dear friend who had a prized possession like, well, for a man, it might be a Ferrari, and for a woman, it might be a beautiful dress. Uh And then in your anger, you got angry with them, and you broke up the Ferrari, or you defaced the dress. And your friend is an especially forgiving person, so you ask forgiveness. And they forgive you. But there's two things that remain that have to be resolved. The car is still sitting there broken up. Mm-hmm. And you yourself have to address that weakness in you that led you to do such an unloving act. Mm, yeah. And that's what, we, that's what the temporal punishment is. And that's what indulgences relate to. Very good. So Very I, good. I know we're presented by the Pro- some of the Protestants who are saying that you can be forgiven your sins in advance till the end of your life by indulgences. No, that's not what we think, not at all. Nobody can be forgiven mortal sins unless they confess them, right? right. As right. the temporal punishment, if you're doing a loving act, then hopefully that helps to form you more inside your own character to make it better. Or why would you want to not at least try to restore 
something you've done, mm. even externally, let's say you steal money, you give it some away to the poor so you don't have it yourself. That sort of thing. I see. Okay. Audra, thank you so much uh, for your question. We'll probably go out with this one, Father. This is from Rita, listening in Cleveland. She says, Father, during Mass, we respond, and with your spirit, to the priest about three times. Are we offering this response to the spirit of the priest, the man? Why would we say, and with your spirit, to Christ? And is, oh. is, is the priest in persona Christi from beginning to the end of the Mass? Please expound on both these questions. Thank you, Rita. All right, well, the actual act in which the priest acts in persona Christi is the consecration. But he is acting because everything is leading up to that and to the communion. Mm -hmm. So he actually is acting in that way. Secondly, um, let's see, I kind of got off the track. Yeah, is the priest in persona Christi? Oh, I know the answer to this big time because I had to answer it in the new translation. (laughs) Okay. Okay, that is not a greeting. It's a prayer on the part of the community that the priestly grace of ordination that the priest received, he will be able to carry through properly in his celebration of the Eucharist. So it's asking God in his God's spirit to help support the priest to do this act in the proper way. So I remember one group of priests were very upset about this. Well, I couldn't resist this. I, I, sometimes I just can't resist. And I said, look, that's not a greeting. It's the laity praying for the priest. Now, are you saying that after Vatican II, we have, only the priest can pray at Mass? No, the laity pray too. Sure. Are you taking away from the lay people the one long right they've won to pray for us? Yeah. yeah. Well said. All right. Well, Rita, I hope that answers your question. Father, a fast-moving show. Could we have your blessing, please? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. 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 And I hope that your parish mission there in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, goes very, very well. Thank you. Appreciate that. We appreciate you. We appreciate all of our listeners. Don't forget, at the same time tomorrow, it'll be our Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, answering all things theological. Be sure to tune in for that. On behalf of our fantastic team here behind the glass, I'm Tom Price along with Father Brian Milady. Thanks for joining us. See you next time here on EWTN's Open Line. God bless.